Hello and welcome to another episode of Block Talk, presented by Theatre of the Now. I'm your host as always, Michael Block. Want to support Theatre of the Now? Head on over to patreon.com slash theatre of the now and become a patron of the website today. And make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. And as always, follow us on Twitter and visit theaterinthenow.com for the latest news, reviews, and interviews. We have a very special episode of Block Talk today. We have a Rhapsody Collective roundtable. Um, let's introduce who's in the room. Why don't you tell us your name and what you're doing for the cycle? Hi, I am Megan All. I am a director for this cycle, and the show that I am working on is Liminal Space. Hi, I'm Chris Goodrich, and I was a playwright this cycle. I wrote a play called A Glass of Tea. I'm Jennifer Prezioso, and I am acting as Beth in A Glass of Tea. I'm Sam Ellis. Uh, I am playing the role of Cass in Of Home. I'm Daphne Macy. I'm acting in the cycle, also in Home, in Of Home, and my role is Anna. Hi, I'm Kate Berg. I am also an actor this cycle, and I'm also in Of Home, and I'm playing Nina. <laughs> and I'm hosting this, but I'm also the director of Of Home, and the artistic director of Rhapsody Collective, but I'm not going to talk about Rhapsody. I'm going to let all of you talk about Rhapsody. Um, so let's just start off with what is Rhapsody Collective? Mm. So deep. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can take it. Uh, so basically, a bunch of actors, directors, playwrights all get together and we help formulate uh, several different shows. So I've this is actually my second time doing Rhapsody Collective, and it's kind of evolved from the, the first time that I did it, but this one was really interesting because we spent several weeks working with the playwrights to develop the plays, and then based off of kind of, you know, how, how people work together in those labs beforehand, we ended up casting and... Um, the, the directors kind of ended up gravitating towards the shows that they found most interesting and it kind of worked out really well, really well and now we're in the rehearsal process so we're, we've, we've divided a little bit but uh, it's actually really good to see folks in the room that I haven't seen in a while. So. <laughs> True. Uh, we've been, I mean, as an, this is Jennifer, speaking as an actor, I've been coming to uh, lab series that we've held weekly and just kind of workshopping, uh, you know, getting to be a part of different writers' uh, plays and seeing their progress and seeing what they've been working on. And then for us, it just gives it a, a sense of cold reads and, uh, you know, how I can bring myself as an actor every, every week doing something different. And um, yeah, I've been fortunate now we've been just started rehearsal. Uh, had one today, but uh, yeah, so it's it's been a lot of fun getting to work on one show now. So how did you all get involved in Rhapsody? So you all have a, a different story. Mike. So, okay. So, I knew we were going to talk over each other at some point. Um, I saw a post that Michael had put up on Backstage, and I was like, okay, and then we got coffee and talked about theater, and I shared many of my strong opinions, as Michael knows, and then I'm here. So that's been good. 
Yeah. I also um, got to Rhapsody Collective through Backstage. I'm really passionate about new play development and just the process of workshopping new plays and seeing them um, come from an idea to something that's really up on its feet. Uh, so when I saw the ad for Rhapsody, I was really intrigued and interested in being part of the process. Uh, I went to see a show with Michael, and he mentioned that he was starting Rhapsody Collective up again, and I pretended to know what that was until about three labs in. <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm here. And you came to almost every lab you could. Yeah, yeah, no, he... because I was still trying to figure out what it was. <laughs> he was he was really the MVP of, of Rhapsody Labs because, well, I, this is Megan. I I was brought into Rhapsody because Michael's my roommate, so he, uh, it was really easy to be here for the labs when I have to just walk downstairs from my bedroom. So that's fun. But anyways, like. You were here every week, and it was great. I had the kind of attendance my teachers wish I had in school. (laughs) (laughs) You guys were the most helpful. Like, as a first-time playwright, having the same people to react to it and develop their opinions on your work was really great. And you read my play several times, so that was awesome. Um, I found Rhapsody through through my show show, showcase at the University of Miami. In the first cycle, I would act and thought I would try out playwriting this time. So anyone who hasn't written a play shouldn't be scared. Just dive in. It's fun. And I know Michael from college. We both went to school at Boston University. And uh, yeah, we both live in New York City now. And, uh, you know, I've, I've heard about it through Facebook and social media. And uh, I'm so happy that I'm a part of it this year. It's yeah, been long I'm, enough, I'm right? I'm glad to have all of you. <laughs> so one thing that we do at Rhapsody is we have a general theme that the plays have to live in. So we did something a little differently this year. Who wants to talk about how we came up with the theme this year? Well, I'll do. Oh, go ahead. Okay. So um, I don't know how we've done in past years. This is my first time in Rhapsody. Um, but this year, we um, everyone who had an idea wrote it down and put it in a hat. And one by one, we'd go around, draw a name out of the hat, and have like sort of a lose a vote on it like we've kind of voted by applause um and just whittled it down theme after theme until we had like our top five and then took the official vote and it's actually interesting because we initially almost ruled this theme out mm-hmm. yeah, yeah Someone, i can't remember who fought for christine it. who wrote yeah. it down she advocated for it no but she convinced yeah. all of us that it was a great idea and our theme is deus ex machina and it was chosen and the more we talked about it, the more it's controversial, it seems more interesting, yes. we want to dive into it, where the other topics seemed so clearly what they were. Yes, exactly. It was clearly political. There was something that clearly. was really nice about this theme in that like, it could really be whatever you wanted it to be, and I think that really it was, it has shown in the types of plays that have been developed thus far, like... Uh, it, it's it's really interesting to see the kind of diversity. So, like, if you are coming to see this show, which you should, like, you should see all of them, all six of them. Uh, if you're if you're coming to see them, you you're not just going to get the same show over and over again because the theme isn't very rigid. So it was it was really nice and some really interesting things. Came and out for of those it. listening who don't know what Deus Ex Machina is, who wants to explain that? Anyone? Uh, so Deus Ex Machina is um, a theater term. In literature as well, um, it means God out of the machine, and it comes from Greek drama when literally at the end of the play there would be a machine with a god, so someone playing a god, who would arrive at the end of the play and would be cranked down in this machine to make everything okay. 
um, and you see it in a lot of Greek drama, and then it's been incorporated into a lot of um, literature and also in theater. Uh, now it's kind of a catch-all term for anything that kind of comes in at the end and like saves the day and makes it all better. But it can kind of be interpreted many ways you want it. So just as Megan was saying, every play has interpreted it differently, uh, which is kind of cool to see what the playwright considers to be deus ex machina. You could call deus ex machina a cop-out or like an easy way out. <laughs> yeah. Everything resolves instantly with no real satisfying um, inner workings of the drama. So if the villain gets struck by lightning and dies and everyone rejoices mm. and then plays over, that's a deus ex machina. Did anyone have any concerns once the theme was officially revealed? A little bit, because Deus, like they said, Deus Ex Machina is usually like a sign of bad writing. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Like, it's usually a criticism to be like, and then this Deus Ex Machina comes along and solves everyone's problems because the writer didn't know what to do. Um, So I was glad that I didn't have the challenge of writing a play. (laughs) (laughs) Me too, and I'm glad I was not a writer this cycle. Um, But yeah, and seeing, um, seeing it used not used to further the plot along uh, as opposed to like seeing how it could be a strength in a play as opposed to a weakness was really impressive and remarkable to see throughout the cycle. I think there's an interesting thing too is a lot of a lot of the players should play around with where they placed it mm-hmm. like so it's like what happens if the Duesek Smahina like is like at the beginning of the show like I think like the placement of it was interesting and just kind of how it was interpreted because some it was way more literal and some it's 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 more of an idea throughout it versus like a literal Deus Machina. So, yeah. And the other thing about Deus Ex Machina is that you, uh, usually it's breaking the rules of the piece in some way. Um, and so to see kind of having the requirement that the rules get broken at some point and then seeing sort of the uh, rules being broken, new ones forming and sort of building and rebuilding the plane while it's in the air throughout the plays. It makes all Mm. these plays really sort of interesting and exhilarating in a way that I don't think they would be without deus ex machinas. So we're going to backtrack a little bit about, before we talk about the plays individually, but we're going to talk about how we got to the plays. So for those who are familiar with Rhapsody, in the past what would happen is I would randomly have teams formed by picking people out of a hat and then they would go about creating their plays with the theme that I would pick. This year I let everyone else decide what the theme was so they could have the outlet to pick what the theme wanted to be. And then the writers got the little challenge of how many actors they had, but from there they got to write anything they wanted. And we developed those plays in the lab series. So who wants to talk about their experience in the labs? Well, the first challenge we got was the number of males and females in each play. And that helped me inform the type of play I was going to write a lot by which characters I could put in the world. And um, I went with the theme and that challenge really just as my starting point. So for in the, in the writing lab, what was the, what were some of your biggest takeaways? What did you learn? What did you struggle with? It's hard to put yourself out there when your work isn't complete and you feel like it's just trying things, throwing paint at the wall. Then it can be, feel embarrassing or overly personal and you don't want to be criticized. But the more you can just let that go and take what you like each week, the more you can put something together that you like overall. And that's what I tried to do. Um, it's not be too sensitive, not be too prideful. Did you feel like all the feedback you were getting was helpful, overwhelming, all of the above? 
people would have their honest reactions and then they would have their constructive mm-hmm. reactions. And so you'd try to take a little bit of both and not be hurt by anything, but say like, oh, okay, people didn't seem to laugh there. Maybe I could take that out or change that joke. And it did definitely help to have a lot of different ears uh, and a lot of different opinions. So we had the Writer's Lab where we had our six writers develop their plays in eight weeks. And next to that, we had a directing lab where we gave free time to the directors to direct anything they wanted. So Megan, do you want to talk about how you experienced the directing lab? Yeah, I mean, so much of why I wanted to be a part of this was because I really love the development of new work. So as a director, um, I decided versus bringing in a play from the outside that I really wanted to work on the material that the playwrights were um, producing so it's not just okay we're, we're hearing it okay let's see it up on its feet what actually works when it's staged um, and I actually got to stage Chris's um, play uh, at least twice um, during the labs and so that was really fun being a part of that process to be like okay I have the play right here it's like what were you thinking for this moment and being able to pick your brain so as a director like how realizing what you had in mind but also okay this is what you had in mind and, but that's not really on that's what's on the page and so it's like kind of figuring out what works so being able to have that strong relationship with the playwright during the director's labs was really fun um, I, I, I enjoyed it a lot then we had acting labs where the actors got to bring in material if they wanted to or we would just continue working on the writer's stuff so what was it like from the actor's perspective um, I think it was really interesting because I Several times I brought pieces that I had written into the acting labs, but several times other people brought pieces that they were auditioning with. So it was really interesting to see how um, how differently each actor used this lab and how much we all got out of it. And also, just speaking as an actor is really cool to watch as well as be a part of, and then you kind of develop your own taste and you're like oh I really like that like maybe maybe that's the kind of work I want to do or you know you see someone else do that piece and then you're like or one time we me we were both like auditioning for the same thing we're like oh we're auditioning for the same thing that's great (laughs) and so then we like helped each other and then kept that conversation going outside of of the lab um you know just to like it's nice to have a buddy yeah work on stuff with (laughs) so what was the best thing you all got got out of the labs i think it was most fun speaking as an actor to uh get different versions of the same scenes from the playwrights to watch having worked on one version one week and then the next week get a new version to see what maybe they incorporated of our notes maybe what they didn't or you know what was changed to see kind of how the story that was being told was evolving um, because as an actor, when you read something, sometimes you're like, oh, I love this. Like, this is perfect. Um, one, one time I took the sides home and I was like, I'm using this monologue for an audition. And I did. And now it's not the same monologue in the play. But that's really interesting that I got to like have this little moment of a story that was, that is now diff- being told differently, but I got, I still have it and I'm going to use it. <laughs> I think something else that was really interesting is Michael, you were really intentional about letting us play different roles and not play the same role multiple times until we were cast in it. And as someone who just really loves development of new works, it was really interesting to be able to contribute to so many different plays 
and to even step into the shoes of characters that I was I knew I was not going to be cast as, but I was able to read for them and maybe uncover other layers for, and I really like that. You make a good point because not being locked into a cast or into a particular play, you could just be creative and not think there's any pressure. It's not an audition. It was just trying things out and helping the writer. And as the writer, I got a ton of good stuff from hearing you guys read my work. Yeah, and just completely low stakes. Like, there's you're not trying to impress anyone or trying to, you know, be the be the best actor in the room or anything like that. And it was really cool for me to just, uh, you know, it's been a long time for me, like basically since college, since I've been a part of a collaborative experience like this. Um, usually I just, you know, audition, get in the rehearsal room, start blocking, and like that's that's the process, and that's okay, but it's really nice to have something completely opposite of that where, you know, perhaps, you know, obviously we're working on this stuff now, but when I started, you know, there's no set goal or thing you have to do or get to. Um, so that's just been really lovely. Yeah. <laughs> I really like, just from like, it's a really organic way to get to know other people within the industry too. Mm -hmm. Like it, it, as far as like I, from last cycle, um, I'm actually writing with one of the actors that I'm working with. So it's just like being able to get to know like-minded people and like, oh, like I really like this actor and I really want to work with them more. I really like this writer and I, I really connect to, to how they write. So just in general, just getting to meet more people um, with like-minded ideas, I think is a really interesting space. It was also really freeing to be able to um, sort of come in and um, even while developing these new works, it was I kind of used the, uh, some of the acting labs as sort of an audition workshop because you knew you were getting cast. Um, and you knew every time you got a new page, you might never get to read this part again. So it was a really good motivation to be like, this is what it's going to sound like when I read this script. And to have an idea and really be able to go with it, knowing that there was, that you were going to be cast and you weren't going to lose out on the part. So we are now in the rehearsal process for all the shows. What's rehearsal been like? Mm. It's a shift because at first we're uncertain, we're uncast, and we're just trying things out. And then now we're suddenly building towards a, a piece, a night, a performance. So I think the, one of the first things I noticed is everyone kind of changing their perspective on the process. It's yeah. ongoing. I thought you were going to say, you're like, it's a shit. I thought you were going to say, it's a shit show. <laughs> no, <laughs> like, no. No, no. <laughs> it's going well. <laughs> it's going I really liked actually because we did so much work with the writers the, the plays were really solid before we got it. it wasn't like oh we have this kind of wishy-washy idea and let's just put it up like um, it was very like very cut and dry exactly like I, I don't feel like we really had to do much many changes to the play because it was just already there um, so having that structure beforehand was really nice and uh, overall, for at least for my, my team, it's been a really smooth process. Does anyone have any stories they want to share from rehearsals? Ooh. Well, today we were playing a little bit with costumes, um, so that was a lot of fun. Just getting a sense of, like, you know, I mean, for me, it's a little bit more standard, like, what kind of bag I would have, or, like, you know, I there's a 
my character has crystals and so like what does that mean and like how big are they how small are they and just that kind of specificity it really helps me inform like what I'm doing and you know it, it sounds so simple but <laughs> at the end of the day it's like a very important part of of the of what we're going to be doing on stage uh, but one of the other characters he is going to be dressed up as a woman and so there's going to be a lot of you know he was just getting into it and like having his costume jewelry on today and the first time he had you know he had like a long kind of caftan vest situation and you know a turban and like what you know like how does that change your character you know completely but um but yeah it's just been a lot of fun and our director is moving in, so her apartment is empty, oh, right. has no yes. furniture at all. You can just kind of walk around it, and that's nice. been that's kind of cool. We did an exercise that was really interesting to me, um, Michael. You asked us to create this um, diagram, I guess, of what the house that the play takes place in looks like, and it's an exercise that I had never done, but it was so interesting, and I think it really created this world for me so much sooner in the process and created so much more specificity for me that I could work with. Um, yeah, and all four siblings had four very different but similar But similar, yes. Yeah. Of the house. Yes. Ooh. It was really interesting because um, in the play, two of the siblings have sort of parental roles and Daphne and Jeff, who plays the other parental kind of the figure, Andy, same had house. the exact yes. same house. <laughs> <laughs> What have been the biggest struggles and discoveries through the rehearsal process? I want to have more rehearsal. That's a struggle I'm going through. Same, same. I just want to dive in and really have the conversations we need to have and to just have fun with it. You want another month. And discover it. One another yeah, month yeah. with um, two rehearsals a week at least. That's yeah. not going to happen. That's a struggle I'm going through. It's hard. It's hard because like everyone has things they're doing and um, you know for me it's like I there's so much dialogue that's the struggle I'm having is like learning my lines when there's so much dialogue and you know how can I as an actor combat that like how like how am I how do I do that in real life because I mean you know when you're at rehearsal all the time and you have off periods then you could like do it with one person but it's like you know we have our little couple of hours and then that's it and then I gotta I kind of gotta figure it out on my own and like how am I gonna work on these lines so it's like I have to take things into my own hands and find people to run my lines with and uh you know it, it's gonna be fine it's gonna work out fine but <laughs> maybe some Skype rehearsal maybe some outside yeah. rehearsal meetings who knows yes yeah it's also been hard having had the opportunity to work on so many different plays in the labs that now you're only working on one. And I love the play that I'm in. I think, you know, I really connected with it and I fell in love with it. But, you know, I fell in love with two or three of the other plays that we were workshopping <laughs> in and now I don't get to play with those scripts and I don't get to play with everybody like I used to. So, you know, that's kind of sad. And you're like, what are they doing? Oh, <laughs> where is yeah. everybody? I almost wish we could do like a little like meet and greet mingle. Like check in. <laughs> here's what we're doing this week. Here's our new scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I have like a lot of monologues so I don't hang out with anybody. <laughs> Not that I don't like hanging out with you, Michael, but it's like, I miss, I miss everybody else. <laughs> miss you too, sis. <laughs> Why is having a theatrical community in New York important? 
Oh my god, it's so sad and lonely when you don't. It's really hard to make theater by yourself, although Kate's doing a great job so far. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, bro. No problem. But it's hard, there's so many people, and, you know, I moved here with a bunch of people I knew in college, but we don't really interact anymore. Um, sometimes I'll see one or two people at an audition, and I'll be like, hey, I know you, but, like, people are waiting to audition, or they're at an EPA, and they, like, hate their life. So, you know... You lose a lot of that community that a lot of people who may have gone to a, a program in, in college or something like that, like, you kind of lose a lot of that support system and just that artistic inspiration of being around people and being able to talk about theater. I mean, I hijacked rehearsal the other day because I just wanted to talk about The Glass Menagerie with Michael because he mm. had talked about it and then I saw it and then I was like, I need to share oh. this with somebody. And so, so it's good. just important to be around people who you can talk about things with and interact with and be artistic and theatrical and or else you just like sit in your apartment and you're I like think, mm. I think because like the city is so it's an expensive city to live in so I feel like a lot of people get sucked into I gotta pay my rent I gotta do this so it's like having a place to go and have that creative outlet is just like it, it's my soul dies if I don't have it so it's it's really nice to to be back in the swing of things and when you're in a theater program you get constant feedback it's like part of what you're paying for is to get response whereas mm -hmm. in an audition they just say bye thank you and you either get it or you don't or you see a really good play and you go home and you can't talk to your classmates about it i just i'm glad i get a taste of what sort of community i had in school here and i'm out of it it's also theater can be is so relationship based and it can become kind of especially in New York, especially when you're new to New York, it can be really hard to sort of break in and start creating work based off of auditions from people who've never seen you before. So if you don't have like a group of peers that you're sort of coming up with and who are in, have similar mindsets, who are coming from similar backgrounds, um, who just want to make work, it can be really difficult to be able to collaborate with anyone or make any work at all. And also, it's it's so it's hard. It's hard to network, and it's hard to do all these things and like put myself out there and go to like events and things <laughs> and like meet new people. And so this was actually this was great for me because I'm kind of jumping back into doing plays and things like that. And it's it's been so much fun to just meet other people and not feel like we're here for this one collective. Thing, and so you have something to work off of. It's, it's not like completely icebreaking, you know, at, at an event or something like that, which is so much more overwhelming. So this was like, no pressure. Like, we're all on the same page. We're all in it together. We're flying V. <laughs> <laughs> yes. What has been everybody's favorite Broadway show of the, of the year? Oh. Oh, I would say mine was Dear Evan Hansen. Yeah. Okay. Um, I was in tears in a good way. I just had well, I just saw it this week, so I kind of have to say it. But I saw A Doll's House Part Two, and it literally shook me and just was. I forgot how funny theater can be, and also how universal and how poignant, and just to see great acting and hear beautiful monologues. It was great. It was great. Everyone go see it. <laughs> Any other favorites? Does it have to be Broadway? 
No, it can be off Broadway. Okay. Off Broadway. Because I was my favorite Broadway show was a Doll's House Part Two. Yeah. You already said that, so I'm gonna pick something else. Um, I saw Othello at the New York Theater Workshop, and I have not stopped talking about it since because I was obsessed with the fact that I was able to go to it in the first place, Mm. and it was brilliant. Um, it. I, it's closed, so you can't see it now, so I'm very sorry, but um, look up pictures or any bootleg videos that I do not officially condone, but absolutely, if you find them, watch them. <laughs> um, it was immersive. It was really cool. All the actors were brilliant. Yes, even Daniel Craig. It's so easy to just be like, ah, oh, film people and doing theater and Shakespeare, but no, he was really good. They all were really good, and I sat in the lobby of the workshop afterwards and called my friend, who's an intern there, who got me the ticket. And I sat there for about 40 minutes just, like, unpacking everything that I'd seen because I was literally shook after I was... I did not move. They had to tell me to get out of my seat and leave. (laughs) Um, That was my favorite show. What are some of your favorite New York City hangouts? Mm. My mom's house. (laughs) (laughs) Closing party there? Yeah. (laughs) Y'all can come up to Inwood and come party with me. (laughs) Take the train. I would say the drama bookshop. I love that place. And I always find, somehow, I always find a new great play to just, like, immerse myself in and mm. sit on one of these chairs. And there's not many, so, um, you know, when you get one, you have to hang tight to it. Um, and it's just, it's such an inspiring place to be. And I, um, well, okay, I guess this is a bit unique. It's not like a, like a... Th- theater hangout or what have you but um my my grandpa is a butcher and so I go to his store all the time uh in little Italy and so I love just like hanging out there and so many I know right it's Albanese meat and poultry on Elizabeth street he um he's a great human but um I just love being there and just meeting all sorts of walks of life who come in there, characters. I mean, I could have so many inspired stories just from, like, who's there and, like, the crazy lady with the dogs and, like, you know, she's obviously not listening to this, I hope. Um, (laughs) I hope. Oh, sorry. Um, But, yeah, just, like, great people watching and get inspired and characters and all that stuff. There's a sandwich place called Meckleberg's. It's a grocery in front. And a bar in the back. Oh, yeah. They have incredible food and a little mm-hmm. patio. And it's really tiny and like hidden in my neighborhood. It's great. Everyone should go. That's all I can say. <laughs> I, I kind of love a place called uh, Crown and Villain in Astoria. Uh, it's like this great Irish pub. Such good food. And um, there's a bartender there. I think his name. I'm pretty sure his name's Dave. And he does like magic behind the bar. So if you go during like when it's really slow, <laughs> like he'll do like close up magic. And so uh, yeah, I'm a nerd. Like I think it's adorable. It, and, and everybody's straight from Ireland, so that's just super cool. Like vibe What's and great fruit, great food. Cronin and Fillin. It's like right at Broadway and Steinway. It's really nice. Yummy. What have have you ever experienced a New York City nightmare? What's your biggest New York City nightmare? Oof. The MTA. (laughs) (laughs) That depends. That definitely depends. Uh, Running into an ex on the subway and then having to take a car with them. That's not (laughs) fun. That would be a nightmare. I kind of, yeah, no. Oh my gosh, I was babysitting someone's kids. I was a nanny when I first moved. And for some reason I couldn't figure out South Park versus Park Avenue. And so I took the kids to the right one. And then freaked out and was like, oh no, we gotta go to the other one. Oh no. Took him on the freaking subway. Oh. 
And then the parents called and like, oh no, it's the other one. Took a cab up. Oh god. Oh my god. It was fine. It was all fine, but I was terrified. That was my nightmare. Um, my nightmare is two parts. One was going through puberty in New York City, which I don't recommend. Um, <laughs> but also now running into people I went to high school with yeah. on the subway or like on the street, and you're just like, hi. And then I have to be like, what are you doing? And they're like, I'm interning at the Wall Street Journal. And I'm like, I'm an actor, <laughs> uh, which is always fun. Uh, so yeah. Sometimes it works. I don't know. I met I met a guy from my high school actually on the subway, and I haven't seen him in years. Yeah, I've had several and, of those um, moments. Actually, it was kind of it was kind of cool. And I'm he's just like a photographer. I know. I know. <laughs> maybe maybe. Damn. So we're gonna move into something that I call the pop five rapid fire. So we're mm-hmm. gonna give you five pop culture things, and you're just gonna first thing that comes in your mind. Don't okay. Okay. First. Number one. The Tony Awards. Neil Patrick Harris. Kevin Spacey. <laughs> Who's hosting this year? Kevin Spacey. Kevin Spacey. What? Yeah. Spice. Oh, Don't knock Kevin battling Spacey. it out with Patti LuPone and Christine Eversole and uh, Bette Midler. That's going to be a showdown. Oh, true. I'm ready. Stevens. Can they lip sync for their lives? <laughs> <laughs> Let's do that. Number two, The hand, Handmaiden's Tale. Oh, I haven't seen it. I just read that book and I have like a <laughs> lot of feelings. I've <laughs> only seen the memes like with like the whole like but her healthcare emails. thing and then it's like, oh, Handmaiden's Tale. So. <laughs> I would say if anyone's interested, uh, they are doing a talk uh, at the 92nd Street Y this week. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to try to like watch it all and then go see it, but it's oh. not going to happen. But. Has anyone seen it? Yes. I've seen like half an episode. I watched it. I've just oh, read I articles about what it's about. I don't know. <laughs> oh, crushed. read the book. The book is. I know. So I need to. Oh, I read it on the beach in Florida, which is not a good place to read that book because <laughs> it's so beautiful. Like the place is beautiful, and then the book is really disturbing. Disturbing. Yes. Apparently, an interesting juxtaposition. There was some immersive thing that happened. I don't know if it was Washington Square mm-hmm. Park or something, but it was like all these ladies in the costumes and just like walking. And well, I people saw have it on been Instagram using story. those outfits as like a protest thing. Like with, I've seen like, pictures of them on the street. If I saw them, there was a bunch of them crossing Park Avenue. Mm-hmm. I would like probably freak out and burst yeah. into tears. Like, <laughs> but they're doing ground level marketing a lot too, like on the High Line as well. That they too, were yeah. Out stuff. Um, Number three, RuPaul's Drag Race. Mm. Valentina. Love her. <laughs> I don't watch. But I, <gasps> I, know, no, I know. I don't watch any TV. I'm the worst. I still have not ever watched it, so. Sorry. I went to a real life drag show. That's, yeah. that's, that's great. Yeah. Did you tip? <laughs> it was at my school, so it was like my friends. You could have thrown a dollar up there. <laughs> there were no, there was no tipping portion. We just cheered. And There's always a the tipping thing. portion. You brave. Well, I went you to the wrong You walk up with a dollar. There, it's never too late to tip a drag queen. So after you see them, just give them a dollar. Walking around, they'll be very grateful. Great. Yeah. So everyone knows that. Now you know. Just walk up to them and be like, yes, it's never, never too late. <laughs> tip your drag queens, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yes, that's the lesson. Is there a proper percentage? Is it just whatever you, you just give whatever well, you have in your wallet. However much they make you live, <laughs> you give them proportionally with a dollar. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, Good to know. Yeah, yeah. Make sure you go to that ATM before the show. <laughs> Number four, Stephen Colbert. Oh, bless. Love him. The controversy is going to be good for him. His ratings have never, never been higher. I don't think I know what's going on with him. <laughs> <laughs> he I, made a joke about about uh, Trump or Putin. One of them being the other one, yeah, Holster, yeah. and... 
Yeah. And yeah. now CBS is getting all these phone calls from these Trump supporters. And then I also saw on Facebook, <laughs> everyone's like, everyone who supports Stephen Colbert calls CBS too. And I'm like, oh man. I mean, I'm like... I hope nothing happens. I don't think... I understand why people are annoyed, but I'm like, every news outlet has been playing the, the Access Hollywood tape on repeat for the last six months. So, what do you, like... Are we not allowed to say cockles? I, I can't even compare because <laughs> that's in my email signature. <laughs> it should, as it should be. I don't even compare the two because one was in private and one was clearly honest. The other was on television. That's like, true. To everyone. I just I re- I can't remember where I read it. I read some hot take thing piece or whatever on it. So I don't remember. All right, and number five is Fire Island. I want to go. Never been. Oh, my uncle Never been. There Never been. Can we go? Can we have a Rhapsody, Rhapsody well, yeah. party? Um, but has anyone favorite. watched the um, great television program? Oh, there's a TV show called Fire Island? Yeah. Oh, I was thinking of the literal island. Never mind. Well, yeah. it's, I mean, they're Is related. Is it about the island? <laughs> well, I'm assuming they're related. <laughs> <laughs> I did like not a, know about the show. It's like a gay Jersey Shore. Yeah. Oh. But like, all the people on it are boyfriends with each other, so there's not any good drama. I've heard. Yeah. Anything that's like this Jersey Shore, I'm like, mm, same. Why? Why are yeah. we doing this? <laughs> Just come on, guys. Like even England did a version. I was like, that doesn't make it okay. <laughs> so what we do on the podcast is I have my previous guest ask my next guest a question. So this question is from Jen and Victoria of Random Access Theater. What is the best meal you've ever eaten in your entire life? Where were you, and what did you eat? Stop oh it. God. Such a hard question. Oh I have an answer. So when I was 20 years old, um, I so I have to take a step back, actually. I was born in Israel and served in the Army. When I finished my service, my mom asked me, what is what do you want um, now that you're done? And I told her the one thing I wanted was to go with her on a mother-daughter trip to Italy. So we did. Um, so I'm 20 years old with my mom in Florence. And we see this cute little restaurant we go and eat there and the food was good but then they give us the dessert menu and i'm allergic to chocolate and i want to eat a tiramisu so this cute italian waiter um comes and i I explained to him i want the tiramisu but i want it without cocoa and he says that's impossible and i say but i really want it without cocoa he goes to the uh, in, to the ask the chef. He comes back and he says, "Okay, but if you don't like it, it's at your own risk." And I say, "That's fine." <laughs> he goes. He comes back and he says again, "But if you don't like it, we're not reimbursed." And I said, "That's fine." He comes back with a very pale-looking tiramisu, and he just stands there and looks at me. <laughs> and it was the best thing I had eaten in my entire life. Nice. Nice. I'm glad that had a happy ending. It did. (laughs) Very happy. I like how you like felt the need to have so many disclaimers. Like you're gonna die from death by (laughs) laughing. Well, and also watch you eat it. Yeah. (laughs) Italians have a very set way of doing things. There's a right way and a wrong way of doing things. And I was doing it the wrong way, but it was so good. (laughs) Maybe that's why it was good. It was wrong. Exactly. So wrong. (laughs) Any other favorite meals? I have one. Tough contest. Most expensive one I've ever had. Okay. I walked into a sushi place, looks like nothing, no decor, just white, barren, looks boring. I try to order maybe like $25 worth of sushi, and they say, that's not enough. The waiter says, no, you have to order more than that. That's not what we do here. So I'm like, okay. Add a little bit more on, maybe like 35 He's like, okay, fine. 
It's a very small amount of fish. It comes out in 30 seconds flat, and it's incredible. Best thing. So I'm like, I have to come back. So I bring, bring a friend back, and you, if you say omakase, the sushi chef can make whatever they want. And so he made me a tasting menu. It was well over $100, but it was the best fish I've ever had and the best meal I've ever had. And we ordered a couple more pieces on top after that. Nice. It was so good. Fred Armisen was there. Oh, was he? That day, Ooh, yeah. Yes. Did you sit with him? No, but someone noticed and they stood up and knocked over their chair because they were like so surprised <laughs> to see him. We were like, we're not going to be like that. We're going to be cool. Anyone else? Um, so I have a meal that I had that wasn't particularly good. Like the food itself was fine, but it was like emotionally a good meal. Um, <laughs> what does that even mean? Okay, so here's, here's the backstory. All day. Because, um, <laughs> My favorite uh, meal was so emotionally delicious. Okay, well, no pressure on me now. Um, so when I was seven, um, I got a staph infection in my knee, and they don't know how, and they don't know why. My parents were like investigated by the CDC, all this stuff, but they don't know how I got it. So I was in the hospital for a week. Uh, I was up in Mount Sinai because uh, I had to have surgery. This was after like months of, it was very drawn out. And um, I couldn't, I was seven. And so seven-year-olds, you know, have to eat. If they don't, it's very bad. So I wasn't allowed to eat for 24 hours before my surgery. Because um, when you're put under general anesthesia as a child, they don't want you to, like, start throwing up on the doctor, so you're not allowed to eat. Um, and I was really, really not having that. Um, and my poor parents had to deal with me. Like, not only is their child going into surgery, but she's also being a brat because she just wants something to eat. So afterwards, my parents said I could have anything I wanted. And I didn't often get to make that choice. It was very exciting. Um, so I ordered Chinese food and cinnamon buns, and that was the combination that I wanted, and I ate it all, and it was amazing. The food itself was fine, but it was the first thing I'd eaten in, like, a day and a half, and it was amazing. That's, I hope that was a good enough story to justify yes. saying it was emotional. Yes. It was emotional. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Um, for me, this is really hard, because I'm Italian, and I feel like every, like, Oh, there's just, there's so many. There's so many things I could talk about. But um, I would say, so, like, it could be a tie. Like, if I'm being nostalgic, it's my Christmas Eve dinner that I have every year. Um, we have 13 different fish dishes. My uncle, wow. my uncle and my mom cook. Um, you know, they try to be as good as my grandma was, who did everything herself. And so that's, like, that's my meal. That's my favorite meal um, ever. Uh, and I would say, like, a restaurant or something like that. Um, my favorite meal would have to be, like, at Momofuku. I get such bad cravings for their pork buns, and, um, it's kind of like a tie between their pork buns and then their cereal, weird cereal dessert... Cookie? Frozen yogurt thing. Mm. Oh, no, the yeah, cookies are so good, though. Yeah. <laughs> you went to their the bakery? Cookies. Yeah. Oh my god, yeah. they're I've, I've had like serious pregnancy cravings. And, like, <laughs> on there, like, made people drive me. Like, it's really bad. We should clarify for the ho- folks at home that Jennifer is not pregnant. Not pregnant. No. <laughs> not pregnant. <laughs> just Italian. <laughs> All right, well, now you guys have to come up with a question for the next guest. One question between all of you. Are we allowed to know who the person is? Nope. <laughs> oh. mm. Um, mm. oh god. Hmm. It could be anything. Now I'm thinking of food, so all my questions are food related. Mm. What is, I, I would say, what's one, are they theater people? Yeah. Usually. What's one thing you never want to see on stage again? 
That's you a mean, good question. That is a really like good question. Like a play? Thing overall. Could be person. Could, it could be, be play. It could be person. whatever a chair you feel called to respond. <laughs> I like that. Like whatever you. I like it too. Yeah, yeah. it's a good one. It's a good question. Yeah. Like, right. What would you ban from the theater forever? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like ideally, I suppose, but you know, you or what know. you will never go see again, even if it is put on stage again, you will not go. See. You know what? Just interpret it as you will. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's yeah. Like interpret it. I like it. So if you've made it this far in the podcast, please use hashtag tip a drag queen. And also, um, <laughs> hashtag Deus Ex Machina. Um, where can we find you all on social media? Uh, for me, it's um, like Liza with a Z and Prez with a Z. P-R-E-Z with a Z. Uh, you can like me on Facebook, and you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at NarcissusSam. It's Narcissism <laughs> with my name at the end. Oh. Uh, my Twitter handle is Daphne... At lower dash Macy. Uh, I'm on Twitter as Kate Berge with an I E at the end, and then on Instagram as Katie Berge. So with a K. Yes. Okay. With, with an I E at the end also. Yes. With okay. an I E. <laughs> I'm a grandma. I'm just on Facebook, so. <laughs> I have an Instagram. It's my name without vowels. Chris Goodrich. C H R S G D R C H. God bless you. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want to follow uh, Rhapsody Collective, you can find us on Facebook at Rhapsody Collective. Um, Rhapsody Collective presents Cycle 5 Deus Ex Machina is at the Tank May 18th at 7, May 20th at 9 30, and May 21st at 3. Thanks for joining me, guys. Thank Thanks you. Yeah, thank, thank you, Michael. A huge thanks to my Rhapsody Roundtable for sharing their time. Don't forget to visit our Patreon page for information on becoming a patron. If you have any questions or comments, drop me a line at theaterthenow.com via our question link. Until next time, I'm Michael Block, and that was Block Talk. Mm -hmm.